One year ago this week, on May 19th, the Edenville Dam failed, followed shortly thereafter by the Sanford Dam. The failure of the dam led to some 2.8 billion cubic feet of water being dumped not only on the small town of Sanford, but further downstream into the homes of many people who lived in Midland and in that general floodplain. The damage was catastrophic, especially to the little town of Sanford and for many of the residents of Midland. Eventually, of course, the floodwaters died down and drained into the Saginaw River and then into Lake Huron. But the problems persisted, especially for many of those who had to live with the disaster of what had happened. Last week, we highlighted something of a dam breaking when we talked about our idolatry and our idolatry before God and exchanging the glory of God for creatures instead of worshiping the Creator, we, we make idols out of the things of the world. What we see then today is that there is misery that comes from that exchange. And it comes upon human beings as the flood of our sin swarms over us. Even as after the flood we can see something of the disaster that is left by the toil that those waters take. This morning with Paul we get to look more closely at the disaster that is wrought by the flood, not only in our individual lives, but also throughout the known world. And amidst this destruction, this brokenness, this floundering, let us also find the good news of Jesus yet again refreshing and enduring. If you would, read with me from the book of Romans, beginning in chapter 1, verse 24. Paul there writes, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men, likewise, gave up the natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of our God. This morning, as we come to our text from verses 24 to 32, although the ESV breaks this down into three paragraphs, truly the text divides really, really neatly into two distinct sections, from 24 to 27 and then from 28 to 32. And before we go on to talk about those particular sections, I do want to mention a couple of things before we even get started, kind of things about the nature of the text and about what's going to happen this morning. First, I think it's important that we think carefully about the tone of Paul in writing what he writes here. 
Many people, when I've heard them preach or when I've heard them speak or even heard them reference this text, do so with an anger or a wrath in their voice, as though Paul was personally injured by the sort of idolatry and sin that's going on in this passage. Now, that's not wholly misplaced. There is indeed the wrath of God that is being revealed. And certainly, when we talked about last week in verse 18, the wrath of God being revealed, this is where we start to see that wrath. And so it's not wrong to think and to speak in a tone of anger and frustration at the very acts of man. But it also comes within the context of the gospel from verses 16 and 17. I think that we would be wrong to assume that Paul here is angry at the Gentiles and angry at the idolatry, but rather sort of in line with something like Daniel 9 is confessing not only their sin, but his own sin. After all, although Paul is speaking in the third person here, that is more rhetorical than anything. He will turn around and he will point directly at himself and at every other Jew and say, we are just as guilty of idolatry and we are just as guilty of sin as the Gentiles are. Second, I want to say something very briefly about what it means for God's wrath to be somewhat passive here. In verses 24 and 26 and in 28, at the beginning of each of those paragraphs, God is said to have handed over mankind. And many people take this as an assumption that God's wrath is passive. He he just kind of lets man do what they want to do. And while there is a sense in which that is clearly the case, I mean, after all, the verb forms are what the verb forms are, we ought not think of God's passivity in the same way that we think of our passivity. We can be wholly passive about certain things. And we don't have to be, and even can't be, interactive with them. The earth is going to turn on its axis, and as it turns around that axis, it is also going to turn around the sun. And we can do nothing to hinder that. We can do nothing to further that. We can do nothing to maintain that. We are completely and utterly passive in that. But God is not the same. God cannot be utterly passive in anything. If God removed his presence from us, if he removed his presence from the earth, if he did not uphold us by the power of his word, we would disintegrate into absolute nothingness. So when it says that God is passive here, you have to understand that God has a choice to make. He is actively allowing people to be further in their sin. He is actively allowing people to pursue the things that they want to pursue. Yes, it's passive, but God is actively choosing that. And third, although this passage does mention some things of sensitive nature, and I want parents to be aware of that, I will tell you, I will do my best to be both clear, but also discreet in the kinds of things that I am saying. Um, Although there are certain things that I need to try my best to make clear, I will do so in a way that is not causing trouble for how you're going to interact with your children. I I realize that there are children here, and and this is a sensitive topic, so I do want to be careful about that. And given the nature of that, and given our current social context, we will probably have to spend a good deal of time talking about those things. So for those of you who are time watchers and you're wondering, man, if this is just the first point, I don't know that we're going to have that picnic next week at this rate. Don't worry, we're going to spend more time on these things, and we we probably need to, given the nature of the passage, as you will see, hopefully. So as we come to this passage, what, what do we learn about our idolatry from the passage and the wreck that has become of the world and our lives from it? First, from verses 24 to 27, we learn that our idolatry chooses brokenness over blessedness. Our idolatry chooses brokenness over blessedness. 
Our passage starts by showing that in his wrath, God gives us up to the desires of our hearts. Paul then clarifies this twice. He says, of their hearts to impurity. And then he clarifies that even more, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. That is, in our idolatry, as soon as we become idolaters, there is no other way for us to go but to land in impurity and the dishonoring of our bodies. And the very first thing to be pointed out here is that this passage is going to work quite a bit off of what we do to God happening reflexively to us. So remember, from last week, one of the things that mankind have suppressed is the truth about God that they should have given him honor But because we did not give him honor or give thanks to him, eventually we are dishonoring him, which comes back down on us. We cannot dishonor God without carrying dishonor in us because after all, we are made in the image of God. So the second that we begin to seek a different God, the second we begin to lower the standard of who God is or the character of who God is, that immediately is reflected in us because we are made in the likeness of God. We naturally dishonor ourselves because we are obviously made in his image. The nature of the dishonoring and the kind of the reasoning for it are worth some time in explaining. In his very kind of famous book, if you're in the right circles, called After Virtue, Alistair McIntyre has this insightful analogy about what it means to make moral judgments on things. He says, how can we call certain things good and how can we call certain things bad? He says, well, it depends. If, if they're functional, if they've got a purpose to them, if they were made to do something, then that becomes really easy to make judgments on. If you find a watch, you can know immediately whether that is a good watch or a bad watch by whether it's telling the right time. If it only tells the right time twice a day, good for it, but at the same time, it's not a good watch. It needs to be fixed. It needs to be repaired. The whole reason why, regardless of what else that watch might do. Some of you have smart watches. It can gauge how far you run and how fast you run. It can tell you when you've got a text or an email. That's not the purpose of the watch part, though. The watch is only there to tell you the time. And that watch is either good or bad, depending on whether it tells you the time, because that is the purpose of a watch. Well, we, too, have been made with a purpose. Paul's argument here runs along these lines. We have been made with a purpose. God had a purpose when he created human beings. That purpose is for us to give him glory, to not only reflect his glory back to him, but to acknowledge it and to sing his praises, to speak of his glory, to worship him in his glory. And Paul can make this argument from both sides of the gospel. In our sin, our sin can be defined as not reaching to the glory of God. In Romans 3.23, a couple chapters over, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We don't give God the glory that he is due. In the same way, in our salvation, then, we ought to give God glory. We ought to find that we are doing the very thing for which we have been purposed. So in 1 Corinthians 6.18, in a passage that is similar to this because it does deal with sexual sin, Paul writes, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body has been given to you. Your person has been given to you. 
so that you might glorify God. But what we have done is we have made other gods. We, in our idolatry, have longed after other things and have worshipped other things. And thus we've naturally made those gods out of lesser things. You can't make anything equal to God. There is one God. There is none like him. And as soon as you replace God with something else, that purpose must be different. You can't reach the purpose for which God had made you because he alone is God and it's to him the glory was to be given. As soon as you make a different God, you are changing the purpose for which you've been made. It might be the pursuit of our own glory. It might be riches. It might be sex. It might be admiration. It might be ease. It might be security. Whatever it is that you happen to run for. We use, therefore, ourselves to maintain these things, to get these things, to achieve these things, and we use ourselves incorrectly. Our desires, our impurity, will always lead to the dishonoring of ourselves because it always uses what God has made for a certain purpose for a different purpose. Because obviously, by necessity, we must be using them for the wrong things, and this causes us disaster. If you did find a watch... You could use that watch for a number of different things. You could wear it as a piece of jewelry. Perhaps it has sentimental value to you. But our sin is not like that. Our sin is like finding a watch and saying, hey, I was looking for a hammer, but this is going to do. You're going to have two things that happen after that. One, you're still going to need a hammer. And two, now you're going to need a new watch. Because the watch wasn't made for that. And our sin always reflects back on us. In disastrous ways. Our sin always leads to our death. Using your person for other purposes will always lead to your destruction. It is never useful for anything else. It is always hammers and watches to us. We'll return to verse 25 because it's necessary to note something in that passage, but I want you to see how verses 25 fits with verse 26 and 27 so that we can get an understanding of what Paul's arguing here. In verse 23, there is an exchange. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. Therefore, God gives us up to lusts. In verse 25, we return to verse 23, in a sense, and Paul almost restates it. We exchange the truth about God for a lie. And then in verse 26, we have the same, therefore, God gave them up. The reason why it's important to notice how that works is because I do not think that Paul is running through some sort of cascade of sinfulness as we descend into like the lower level of Dante's hell. The point in picking out homosexuality here is not because it's worse than every other sin. It's because it does something that no other sin can really easily do, and that is depict how sinful man runs against the very purpose of God in creation. It is a depiction of what it means to dishonor our bodies amongst ourselves. I mean, what other sin would show the obviousness of our acting against our purpose and design? How does stealing do that? God gave you hands. The purpose of hands is to take things. How does it work against the nature of God's creation of you to say you shouldn't steal? Now you can say, well, God said we shouldn't steal, but yeah, but you're already assuming God. What is it that shows as obviously as homosexuality the very foolishness of the way in which we press after sin? So I don't think that Paul uses this example because it's the most stark or because it's the most horrific. 
but I think rather he uses it because it's the most fitting and the most helpful. Homosexuality runs against nature. This is the same word that Paul uses twice in here. In verse 26, women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations. The whole point is, Paul's saying, he's not saying anything about monogamous, heterosexual couples. He's saying simply that your physiological makeup as man and woman are made in such a way that they naturally complement and go together. It's that simple. And he's saying it's obvious and it's clear to everyone that that is the case. No one's confused by that. But in homosexuality, we don't pursue sex that way. Instead, we take what is natural and we invert it. And Paul's saying this is a picture of what all sin does. This is a picture of, of how everything is destroyed in sin. It just so happens that homosexuality is a really easy to understand picture of that. And you can see how the rejection of this purpose leaves us absolutely broken. You can look at stats about how those who practice homosexuality are more likely to commit suicide. They're more likely to be abused and to be abusers. They're more likely to be rampant drug users. Those stats don't tell the whole story. There's a number of different factors that go into that. It's not just the fact that they practice homosexuality, that those things are true. But Paul's point isn't simply that. It is more theological than it is sociological. He simply means this. If you reject God's purpose in creation, pain and brokenness are inevitable, and everyone rejects God's purpose in creation. That is what idolatry is. That is why you are broken. That is why you have pain. That is why you suffer. We know this for a number of different different uses of the human body, a number of different ways in which human beings sin. We can see how it affects us, even physically. There have been so many studies done on the effects of the brain of people who watch and intake pornography. It literally messes with their brains. It, It makes them different human beings. Their brains do not function the way that they used to. It breaks them. Not only does it push people deeper and deeper into the dark recesses of pornography, but even amongst young men, it can lead to literal physical dysfunction. They can't perform. Drugs are the same way. If you simply see your body and the purpose of your body as an avenue for you to receive pleasure, It doesn't take much to look at the nature of drug use at people who have heavily been abusing drugs and to see the devastation that that reaps on their bodies. Our rejection of God's purpose leads to our brokenness. Now, here, I think we should and need to mention something about how modern interpreters want to handle these texts. The New Testament doesn't often talk about homosexuality, so this is one of the texts in which people come to most often when dealing with homosexuality in our modern culture and what the Bible has to say about it. Although the Bible doesn't say a huge amount about homosexuality, Christian tradition, because this is what Scripture says routinely and every time it is mentioned, says that homosexual practice is a sin and is condemnable by God. It is never redeemable. It is never good. It is never marginally okay It is always an abomination, a sin, and wrong before God. However, numerous amounts of people want to reinterpret that, 
when you have a long-standing Christian tradition that people want to overturn, there are two ways that this happens. The first one is that they look at the relevant texts and they blow them aside or they say Paul was wrong or they say we don't have to listen to that or they say we know better now. And those types of arguments you can just shove to the side. They don't matter at all. Scripture is our final source of all authority and therefore if Scripture says that it's wrong, we can't just brush it aside and say, well, we don't need to listen to it. Okay? But the second way does require our attention. And this happens for a number of different theological arguments that we have. It's one thing to say we're not going to listen to Scripture. It's another thing to say Scripture's not saying what you always thought it said. Those arguments we need to listen to because just from a standpoint of humility, we have to believe that we are not the only readers of Scripture. And we certainly don't read Scripture perfectly. And there's a number of people who try to deal with the passage that's before us and try to understand how Paul is talking about homosexuality here. Some say that Paul is only deriding sort of unnatural homosexual acts. What he means by unnatural then is not so much the physiology as I've explained it, but what he means by unnatural are really heterosexual people engaging in homosexual acts for whatever reason. So they, they aren't naturally homosexual, but they're going to act that way. Well, I don't know how you want to define naturally homosexual. I don't even know how you want to define homosexual in that case. But it's quite clear for Paul when he says they were consumed with passion for one another that they desired honestly what they were doing. Now, if you've got some other weird way of defining homosexuality that doesn't include desire, I, I don't know what to tell you. That is a really clear indication that Paul is not, not outside the bounds when he says this isn't just heterosexual people doing something that goes against their nature. Their nature seems to be, in that sense, desiring what is wrong. Secondly, some would say that Paul doesn't understand our modern knowledge of orientation. The way in which we talk today about people being oriented, having a same-sex attraction, and even that from birth. They would say, well, Paul doesn't know that. Truth be told, the Greeks wrote about it all the time. Like, we, we think that this is some sort of modern invention. It is if the modern age goes back to like 300 B.C. The, the Greeks wrote about this. They had pretty decent knowledge of what we would modernly call an orientation and even an orientation of being born that way. They knew this. There's no indication that Paul necessarily knew it, but there's no indication that he didn't. It was out there and it was available for him. So even if Paul didn't understand that, there's no indication that Paul would have agreed with it. Third, some would argue that Paul is speaking mainly of abuse here. That is, he doesn't mean to malign monogamous homosexual relationships, but rather to point out the abuse that can happen in homosexual relationships. No. No, there's no indication that that's true. In verse 26, when he's talking about women, he gives no indication at all that abuse could possibly be the case. And even when he talks about men, he says that they were consumed with passion one for the other. There's a reflexive nature there. It's not a forcing on somebody. You've got to read abuse into the text. Lastly, some would argue for an approach of trajectory, and they would say, well, the trajectory of morality in the Bible shows that even though the New Testament doesn't allow it, we should understand that the end of morality, the widening of 
moral behaviors from the Old Testament to the New Testament means that homosexuality would be something that was acceptable to Paul today or will be in heaven. Now, when we talk about this sort of trajectory, you need to understand it seems like it's faults on its face. I don't think that trajectory interpretations are wrong. I think that that's good, wise, and true. And a matter of fact, I think the New Testament does that in a number of ways. It looks at the Old Testament, it looks at what's going on in the Old Testament, and then it applies a trajectory to it in the New. But in order for there to be a trajectory, there's got to be some sort of lift. There's got to be some sort of change. There is never a change in the way the New Testament or the Old Testament talks about the practice of homosexuality. The engaging in homosexual sexual acts is always condemned. It is just always condemned. There's no trajectory there. After all, Paul is making an argument from creation here. In these passages, he's not just using the words men and women, but he uses really rare words that he almost never uses, male and female. Why does he do that? He does that because that is a reference back to Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Paul's point is that in creation, in God giving a purpose to humankind, that purpose, as far as sex goes, was physiologically embodied. And so homosexuality is a really good understanding of what it looks like to go against the purpose of God and how it makes no sense. So in the end, while Paul certainly isn't trying to support homosexual practice, he's not putting it on a kind of worst sins of all time list. He's simply using it as an example of how sin works against creation and purpose and how that ultimately leaves us broken. Verse 25 is important. Not only does it rephrase what happens in verse 23, it's not no longer as he's just talking about glory, but he's, he's exchanging the truth for a lie. This is false. It's not right. It's not true. But notice that little phrase at the end. It'd be one thing for him to restate it, but he gives us this little doxology. Who is blessed forever. Amen. Clearly, he doesn't mean that the people who have been made by him bless him forever because his whole point is nobody's doing that. What he means is God is the blessed one. God is the one filled with joy and happiness and peace and goodness. He is the one filled with all manner of blessings. As Psalm 16 would say, at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. What Paul is holding out is when you exchange the goodness of God, when you exchange the blessed God for images resembling mortal creatures and mortal man and creeping things and all of creation, when you reject the one true and living God for anything else that your heart might pursue, you are forsaking blessedness. And the only thing that can possibly come from it is brokenness. Secondly, our idolatry chooses floundering over flourishing. Our idolatry chooses floundering over flourishing. In verse 28, Paul says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. The NIV, I think, is a little bit better here. When they say, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. Paul is going to once more use words to his advantage. 
Previously, we had talked about how rejecting God's honor leads to their dishonor. Exchanging God's glory for another also leads to an exchanging of natural relationships. Here, they will look at God, and they, the, the word is used for testing things. Think of, a, think of a guy in the Old West putting a piece of gold into his mouth and biting on it to see if it's real. Gold is soft. It will give. Fool's gold is hard. And so it won't. He's testing it to see if it's worthwhile. And they're saying they tested God. They, they thought that God wasn't really worthwhile. Rather than at the end, when it says in verse 32, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Those two words are really closely related. They're saying they didn't think that God was worthwhile, but they do think that these listing of sins is incredibly worthwhile. They think that these things are worthy. God is not. In our idolatry, we eventually see evil deeds as worthwhile and God as worthless. Notice that it's the emphasis now, not simply on a matter of the heart, but simply the matter of how our heart works out, what ought not be done. We rejected what God wanted, and we did otherwise. We did so because we thought that we knew better than God. We thought that we knew the way to flourishing. We thought we knew the way to blessedness, but it leads only to destruction. To mark this, Paul has a vice list. This vice list is found in kind of three groups. The first are words that modify this idea of being filled with. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. The ESV does a really good job by translating this all kinds. It's not just one specific kind of unrighteousness. It's all manner of unrighteousness. Every bit of unrighteousness that you can identify ideally think of, this is what mankind was given over to. You'll notice that Paul is moving away from an idea just of sexual sin and, and extrapolating it to everything. We have forsaken God. And that might be best demonstrated by a specific sexual sin, but it affects every single ounce of us. And notice that most of these things are heart matters. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They work their way out in our lives, but they are a matter of our hearts. Second group is words that modify full of. Instead of four terms, now we have five. The list grows. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. It's important that he doesn't just list these. These aren't just things that we have, but Paul says these are things that we are full of. We are brimmed out with them. We might top that cup off so that people don't see it. We might socially be able to hide it, because we know that it's not acceptable, but nevertheless, these things sink down into the very heart of who we are and they fill us up. The last 12 terms, which is probably not mistaken by Paul to be symbolic of the fullness of everything, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Each of these describes who we are. These are attached not to something like being full or being filled with, but now they are. They, this is who idolaters are. These are the kinds of people that they are. They are descriptions of idolaters. We destroy the reputations and speak ill of others. We are astonishingly evil in what we do. No longer are we just suppressing the truth about God. No longer are we just ignoring God. But Paul comes straight out and says, you hate God. 
We're good at evil. So good, in fact, we find new ways to practice it. We hate God so much that any sort of authority that might present itself as a form of God, we rebel against even those relationships that God has given us to be closest to us and to help us out the most. We are disobedient to parents, which frankly, for many of us, seems like it's wrongly placed here amidst all of these other huge sins. But it's not. Disobedience to parents is at the heart of what it means to disobey God. I think that there's something to a progression of Paul's list here. First, we're filled with it. Then we are full of it. Then it becomes the center of who we are. This is our description in Adam. This is our heritage. And it is inescapable for anyone who has been born of the flesh. Whether Gentile or whether Jewish, every single person in here has this as part of their sin-filled nature. The last verse speaks of what we actually do think is right, what we do give our approval to. We have rejected the way of God. We have thought that that was worthless, but we accept these things as worthwhile. This is incredibly important because what Paul is therefore arguing is not that you just kind of slipped into these things and it was just part of your nature and you did it on accident, but you have given thought to these things. You have considered the outcome of these things. You haven't just acted impulsively, but you sit back And you consider and you think through them and you give hearty approval. You think that such things are worthwhile. And we do them anyway. And we encourage all to do the same thing. Friends, the vices at the end of Romans 1 are ways in which the world thinks that we achieve what is good. The world approves of slander and gossip so long as it's done for that which they consider good. So, friends, do you allow others, even your enemies, to be slandered so long as you consider it okay and good? So long as it serves a good end, so long as that person is wicked enough, it's okay to take them down, to say things that are not true of them, to slander their name. Is it okay so long as you are ultimately in your own head somehow serving the kingdom of God? Is not such things evil in the sight of God? Our world approves of the murder of the right people. Eventually, we're going to think almost immediately of abortion and the evil practice of abortion. And those who not only commit abortion, but especially those who push vulnerable women into abortion. We get righteously angry about that. Are we just as righteously angry when those who are in authority kill people without due process? When police shoot people for resisting arrest? Resisting arrest is not a capital offense. Are we quick to go along with that simply because that's the kind of the group that we follow? Should we not be as horrified by that evil as we are the evil of abortion? Is it okay to approve of the murder of some people because we just don't like them very much? Our sin accepts evil as right, justifies evil as right. We in our own hearts, people in this room, people who act and think and look like us, people who worship Jesus Christ, 
often show our own twisted hearts that we get righteously angry over one sin, but we don't get just as righteously angry over other sins that look exactly like it. Our sin longs for what others have instead of longing for God. We want power, we want money, we want honor. Our sin speaks more highly of ourselves instead of God. Friend, are you more interested in what people think of you or of what people think about God? Do you try to create an image online so that people will think well of you? Or are you much more interested in what people think of your God? One of those things is holy. The other one is just rank sin. The world lacks scruples, love, and righteousness, and it presses others to be like it. These are the ways the world thinks that you will flourish. Friends, it is not. That is not flourishing. That is not blessedness. That is floundering in the world. They might run for a while. They might seem to win, but in the end they will slip and fall before God. They might seem like they are victorious for a time, but that time is coming to an end. Sin is nothing but a black hole. We're sucked into it, forever stretched along the event horizon, unable to get out of its grip. No light can escape from there. We cannot see the truth of God's light, how backwards we are. Do you truly listen? As we go through the month of May and the month of June, every single year for the past couple of years, our benedictions come from the Beatitudes. You hear how backwards the Beatitudes are? Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Like, this is what flourishing looks like. This is what blessedness looks like. Who are the blessed people? The blessed people are those who are meek, who are poor, people in mourning, people hungering and thirsting for righteousness, people who pursue mercy and purity, who are peacemakers, people who are persecuted. The world would look at that and say, well, that's flourishing. I guess if you want to hunger and thirst for righteousness, that's fine, but that's not really the way you're going to make it in life. You've got you've to think well of yourself. You've got to take the bull by the horns. You've got to carpe diem, man. Jesus says, no, that's, that's, not, that's not the way of blessedness. That is not the way of flourishing in the world. The only way to pull yourself out of this, it seems, is to truly see God and approve of his ways, to know Jesus Christ as God and be his disciple, to find that the way in which he lives his life and the things that he pursues are the things that we always ought to pursue, to pursue the fruit of the Spirit and by the Spirit to put an end to the deeds of the flesh. But know this, to do such things is nothing less than a gift of God. And that gift is here for you. As it is for everyone else in the gospel. Jesus in dying on the cross in obedience to the plan and will of God provides for our sin because he dies in our stead. He defeats the powers that stand over us and keep us in slavery before he defeats death. And he shows us the good way to live. He shows that his life of obedience, his life of meekness, his life of humility were not wasted because God raises him from the dead to incorruptible nature. Immaculate and immortal body is given to our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gift of the gospel. It is not just forgiveness, but a whole new life. One that flourishes even as it strives against the tide of the world. A new life that sees the things of God not as foolishness, nor as wasted pursuits, but as the only thing actually worth pursuing. If you know the Lord today, if you know Jesus Christ, press these things all the more. Throw away all sin. Find it, get rid of it, 
kill it, destroy it. And find your redemption, your restoration, and your reconciliation in Christ as the only way to ever truly know flourishing and blessing. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, perhaps you think all of this is just foolishness. You say, I'm not, I'm not honestly all that bad. That dude might be that bad. That girl over there might be that bad. But I'm not what Paul is saying here. May God be so kind as to give you sight today. For you not knowing the evil of your sin is precisely the point of the text. These people see their sin and they said, no, it's worth it anyway. They see their evil and they think, no, it's good. They pursue what God would punish. They treasure that which will bring them to no good end. Are you not in the same position Are you not in rejecting the Lord's merciful, kind revelation of the truth, showing your own blindness? Will you not hear the word of God this morning? Indeed, you cannot, lest God show you the truth of his glory to you. And so we will pray for that very thing for every single person in here. That God would show the truth of his glory to us, would open our ears and open our eyes to that truth. Because though the dam is broken, and as, and all of our lives are flooded, still, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we come up out of the water. We come out of the dead to walk in newness of life. Let it be so. Let us pray. Father, may your gospel shine brightly for your people this day. There is no one in this room that stands perfect before you, Isn't that just the least thing that we can say? Rather, we're all spoiled and stained and ruined in our sin. Let us see the glory of the Lord in contrast with the filth of our sin. And in seeing ourselves and you in the right manner, give us hope in Jesus that we might be forever remade, forgiven, and restored. We ask this for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.